That would be that would be a really good medium think piece though. And then people would write think pieces about the medium think piece. Oh, of course. And it would just be like, there's gotta be a term for that. What is that? It's like a recursive medium think piece. So that you think that people would write medium think pieces about the medium think pieces yeah. written about your medium think piece. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's pretty good. That's three levels. That's three levels deep. <laughs> that sounds like the. Um, Sounds like the plot of the next Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have to go deeper. <laughs> we can't handle another think piece. <laughs> if you die in the third think piece, <laughs> you just your whole life just becomes a think piece. <laughs> if you're reading the third level of the think piece and you click on the fourth link, <laughs> your computer just starts smoking. <laughs> Welcome to the EmberMap podcast, where we discuss design and development in the world of EmberJS. I'm Sam. I'm Ryan. And if you like what you hear today, you can find more of our work on EmberMap.com. So it's January, and uh, EmberConf is right around the corner, actually. Yeah, early March. It's funny. It always feels like it comes up pretty quick. Like, I'm not thinking about EmberConf at all at the end of the year. Yeah, and then you're like, hey, next week we're going to Portland. Yeah, and we have two trainings to run. So, um... Yeah, just wanted to mention again, we are running putting two trainings on. It's January, so um, good time to book tickets, good time to make plans, um, get your Airbnbs and all that taken care of. Um, we're going to be there the weekend bef- before, undoubtedly. So if anyone's in town and wants to set up a dinner, grab lunch, go walk, go for a walk with some Portlandians and try some weird coffee, you know, we always like partaking of the local culture yeah well we got to hit up that uh salt and straw oh yeah absolutely that's a that's a staple um so yeah be sure to reach out if you are planning on being in portland that weekend before and want to get together um so i was working on some fun stuff this week kind of in my research time I, I call it like i call my new time where i'm just exploring things my research because it makes it sound more <laughs> interest like more important than what is i'm actually doing which is just noodling around in an editor (laughs) and reading various library code (laughs) i'm imagining you in like a tweed jacket smoking a pipe you know twirling your mustache i've got three books open yeah you know and i'm just writing down my thoughts like winston churchill you know i'm watching the crown and he was like composing his speeches laying down in bed with a table like this and he's got his pipe in one and then the whiskey scotch or whatever and the other while he's laying down yep and it's just like i'm like that that's the goal right there also you know everyone smoked during this time like 50 years ago yeah it was it wasn't good for years ago i guess so i mean everyone smoked everyone all the time it's pretty amazing going to to a hospital doctors just you know really cigarette hanging out of his mouth (laughs) and the king is dying from his lungs they take out one of his lungs. Sorry if no one's seen the first episode of The Crown, but uh, they take out one of his lungs. I don't even know you could live with one lung. Apparently you can. Maybe not for long. <laughs> but uh, he's still smoking with that one lung, so that's pretty, <laughs> nice. that's pretty impressive. Nice. <laughs> anyway, that's my goal now is to, uh, you know, every time I compose a new blog post or write a script for a video, to be doing it with a pipe, my whiskey in bed. In bed. Yeah, the, you know, the ash would just fall out. Light your sheets on fire. <laughs> no, because I've got Jarvis, my butler, to come up and uh, <laughs> you know take care of everything for me. Nice. <laughs> so uh, during my research time this week, uh, I got to play around with Babel. 
um, kind of the inner workings of Babel, not the inner workings of Babel, but um, Babel plugins and using Babel's API, which, you know, obviously we all use Babel kind of every day, but we usually don't interact with it directly. Yeah, I don't think I ever have. Yeah. It's one of the things I love about Ember. Exactly. Um, so I wanted to experiment with writing a Babel plugin. And this was for our storefront add-on. And we were, we were kind of thinking through some different ways we might expose one of our APIs, which is basically opting into async false on all your Ember data relationships. And one way to do that would be to use a Babel plugin to transform that code. Um, you could either do it as a static code mod where, again, you do this whole idea of an AST parsing and rewrite the code, and then you just output the changes and then the, the developer can review them. But we were also experimenting with this idea of doing it kind of at build time because then you wouldn't have this kind of async false scattered all over your code. And you also wouldn't need to always remember to pass in async false. Um, so one idea here is, you know, if you have async true specified, um, you could detect that from the code mod part of the Babel plugin and kind of raise a warning at compile time. Um, and then otherwise we could just go ahead and add the option for you so that Ember data would behave as if you had passed in async false. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I was experimenting with and yeah, it was fun, you know, um, it's not like the onboarding is not as simple because a lot of the stuff is lower level and the only folks really using it regularly are people who are kind of doing framework level stuff. Um, so the Babel guides themselves are great and there was a handbook that was great, but actually getting it to run as part of my Ember app, you know, there was some wiring there that involves some source code digging. Where, like at what, what was uh, the point in your Ember app that you, you hooked into Babel? So I'm trying to remember what I actually ended up doing, but basically there was, a, I had thought about doing this in a bunch of different ways because first we, we had an add on and, you know, you get access to the tree of the, of the project and the host, the tree of the host app as well that has installed your add on and you can manipulate files that way. So it's kind of interesting to see how, you know, coming at it from different angles with broccoli in an Ember add on, you basically have access to all of the files. And you can do whatever you want to those files, including, you know, reading, reading their, the source from disk as a string, parsing that using, you know, some, um, some syntax parser like Babylon, which is what Babel uses and then traversing it or whatever, which is, you know, that's the normal compiler and then, flow and then rewriting and it. then rewriting it to disk. So you could actually just do that with string replacement if you wanted to. Right. But that's kind of understanding the different abstraction levels these two things exist you know broccoli is moving files through your system and rewriting and doing things but again the, the great thing about babel is that it really it composes well with basically everything so once you have your hand on a file you can do whatever you want to it and babel knows how to um, transform files right so then i after kind of toying with that and just learning a little bit about the add-ons hooks that we have available and and what it actually takes to transform some files for example, grabbing all the model files in the host app and then doing something to them and rewriting them to that part of the tree. You know, I realized that we also basically Babel is already set up. And so Babel is already set up for Ember apps. It already uh, transpiles our source code. 
And so it's already wired up. And so you can just add plugins actually. And you know, you wrote about this a week or two ago where you add the object rest spread operator and that's a Babel plugin. So that already exists. And you, to use that, you just add it to your plugins array, which is just some config options. Somewhere. Right, right. And this comes from, it's like Ember CLI Babel. They exactly. give you a way where you can just add in other plugins. Exactly. And Ember CLI Babel is kind of included by default for Ember apps. And so it's already wired up. And um, Ember CLI Babel has a great readme, actually. It kind of talks about how it works and how to add stuff to it. And so, you know, after some more kind of noodling around, what I landed on was, you know, the question is, as the authors of this ad on storefront, we want to make this functionality available in some way. So how do they do that? Right now, it's kind of you import a function and run it in your app.js. There's a couple of ways we could do this. But if the thing we end up shipping is a Babel plugin, there's a really you know, straightforward way to add Babel plugins to your app. So we could just tell people to add it to their app. Is this something that that someone would still have to like open their Ember CLI build JS file and, and add a line? Or, or because they've installed our add-on, can our add-on can our add-on hook into this and automatically add a Babel plugin? I think there's probably always a way to do that. So actually, I know there's a way to do that. So first of all, the the add-on install could do a code mod on the Ember CLI build file and make sure it's there. It could also uh, yeah, I mean more like a programmatically like a, yeah API. So there's an API that's there's caveats. Apparently, it's not an official way to do it, but in your index.js file of your add-on, um, you can call something like this.parent.babel.plugins.push. It's just an array. Mm-hmm. So we could push something directly to their um, to their plugins array. But because this is a feature of Storefront that we want people to opt into, since it's kind of like an experimental thing, what would it look like if Ember Data behaved like this? We want them to take a step to opt in. So I think, you know, if it was something we were going to do in the index file like that, where we push something to an add-on, they'd still have to opt in. So maybe they opt in with like a config option. So why not just opt in by adding the Babel? Plugin? Right. If, if they've got to change a file anyway, they can just add some code. And that way they understand what's going on. Like if you installed an add-on, they were like, okay, push, add this thing to your Babel. It's like pretty clear what you're doing. So we could go either way. But anyways, what's really cool is if we do decide to go that route, the way you add a Babel plugin from our add-on to your app is to go to your Ember CLI build file, define the Babel config in the new Ember app section in the hash, and then you define plugins. And then for the name of the plugin that you add, you can actually just do a path to the add-on. So you can do something like, um, you know, when you install like an NPM package that's a Babel plugin, it makes like transform object rest spread operator. And that's just like the name of the thing and that is registered. But you can also do like Ember data storefront slash lib slash for sync. So, and, and this is like anything that's in your node modules directory. Exactly. So it ends up being just a path, which is super cool. Um, and so, yeah, the fact that all that stuff is wired up is pretty awesome. So, you know, regardless of where we land on this specific one, it's really nice to know that if we do have a use case where you want to share a Babel plugin, it's very easy. You would just put it in an add-on, someone would install it, and then they would just be able to reference it directly from their app like that. Nice. So very cool. Um, it was also fun learning about AST's compilers a little bit. I had never learned about any of that stuff. I don't have a formal CS education, so I never like went through that module. And um, you know, Babel was so popular at this point, so well supported. The docs were awesome, and I learned a ton. James Kyle has a has a handbook on this stuff, so nice. that's kind of where I started. 
how is like the i bet the api was pretty decent too yeah like it there's the functions you need the, to, to crawl the tree and yep and they do a lot of that for you and yeah they talk about the visitor pattern so um you don't have to write like a recursive or a traversal function yourself you're just defining an object and the keys of the object are the types of nodes in the code that you are interested in. Mm. So let's say you want to rename a variable. Um, instead of traversing everything and saying if node is variable, you just the, the visitor pattern lets you define an object and have a key called something like variable, let's say, variable declaration. And then that function will run and it'll pass in the node every time it hits it. And then you can say something like if node.name equals, and if it's like, you know, every variable called foo and you want to rename it to bar, you could just, if node.name is, is foo, then node.name equals bar. Oh, so you just modify the node. You that just they modify gave the node. That's pretty cool. That's it. And you don't even return it. Like you just modify it and you can do all sorts of stuff. You can change out its children. You could add it to, you could make a function like, wrap it in an anonymous function and you all you just do that using node and like children and parent basically and so um it's pretty cool because it's like you know i the the traversal code that i have the most experience with or like the recursive traversal stuff is like some of the stuff in mirage where you're serializing nested things and you have to tra it, that code just gets it just gets hard very quick i mean it's just a hard problem yeah yeah absolutely and it's you know if it's something that 90 percent of of authors are doing it's pretty cool that they've found a way they can give you a nice api for it yeah where you don't have to think about that yeah. at all um now i was just only writing super simple transforms and i know you know with harder ones i'm sure it's way harder but the examples i looked at and what i needed to do it was pretty easy to get it done so that was really cool nice yeah so you know while i was working on this we had some conversations about compile time versus runtime exceptions or optimizations or basically just the difference between those two and when you want to use them for different things mm -hmm. we were also talking about this because with some of the style guide stuff we're doing um, in our ui components there's some compile time optimizations you can make and um, that was another thing i was messing around with miguel cambra has this repo called ast helpers where he's basically trying to make he's abstracted some of the things he's did in the font awesome uh, add-on to make it easy for other people to do the same kind of thing. So in, yeah, what's an example? So in, in Font Awesome, he basically came in and rewrote the component to be a com what he calls a build time component. Right, this is a thing that, that in my template, it looks like a component, but at compile time, it gets rewritten to static HTML. Exactly, so he kind of noticed that most of the time the way people were using Font Awesome is in a static way. You need, uh, an exclamation point, you need a close button, you just use FA icon close and it's there for you. But in reality, that thing is instantiating an Ember component at runtime. It's looking up the right icon at runtime. You know, Ember is doing a lot of work just to render that checkbox to the screen, uh, as opposed to letting the browser do what it does best, which is just render static HTML and CSS. So what he noticed, when he noticed that basically he, you know, PR the, the whole the whole project with something that said, you know, I rewrote FA icon to be static compile time component. 
Nice. Does it does it detect like what if you do FAI con and then you throw like a, a sub expression in there, like you throw an if statement in there? So it was cool because I kind of went through some of his commits and saw it get more complex and then ultimately him extract this out into the build time the AST helpers. So first he started with, okay, this only looks and says, okay, if I see again this traversal code, if I see a handlebars expression and it's called FAI con, then I'm gonna start doing this cool node stuff in the Babel plugin. And if everything is like a string expression or an integer or every option is just like a, a string, it's not an expression, not everything's an expression in JavaScript, but it's not a variable. Then right, I, all, the, all the children are strings. Exactly. And I can just rewrite this as FA icon to, you know, an icon tag with a class of FA icon and FA dash exclamation point. And so then he added more um, transforms where because we have HTML bars instead of handlebars, HTML bars is HTML aware. So before, remember, in handlebars, you couldn't do something like a div with a class equals curly curly. Mm, yeah. You had to use bind adder because handlebars didn't understand it was dealing with an attribute of a DOM node. But then when HTML bars came around, it did, which is why we can do things like div style equals curly curly. Um, so what he does is if you have FA icon, um, you know, um, loader as a string and then you have spin equals is loading so that's a dynamic thing clearly that's not something that can be done at build time you would need some javascript to make that thing work um, which is why it can't fully be transformed into just static html and css but if you look at what are the static parts and what are the dynamic parts oh oh so the icon is still static exactly it's just the, the the spin the is loading that's the only thing that changes exactly so we have something that's like so you can still rewrite it to an HTML tag. Yes. But it's an HTML tag with with some sub with some some, some uh, CSS class that like changes exactly, the spinning. Exactly. It's going to be something like something like class equals FA FA icon and then curly curly. That's really cool. Really cool, right? Yeah. So really it's cool. like I can't optimize this, but I can optimize part of it. Exactly. So now yeah, it's great, right? Yeah. So it's like it's like even more sophisticated. Hey, I have, I have a question. So we, we started this by talking about uh, JavaScript ASTs, but it sounds like now we're talking about HTML and handlebars. So where did this stuff come from? Like That's a, a good question that I'm still learning about. So I think Babel proper, um, <clears throat> I'm not sure if it's, I'm not sure what enhances Babel to be able to understand different kinds of syntaxes. I'm not sure which parts of Babel core um, know about which syntax, but you know, Babel works on JSX, which is a custom syntax, right? It's not JavaScript. Okay, so, so you can write, I could, if I wanted to, I could write like some Ruby thing for Babel exactly. probably. Okay. Basically, you just need a parser that understands something. And the parser, what are the steps? There's parse. Like tokenize. I know that's it's like parse, transform, and then output are like the three things that the ways they break it down. So you have a parser, which I think is called Babylon. And then you have your transform, which by default, Babel does nothing. And the plugins are what transform it. So like the way we go from like ES6 to ES5 is with the transforms, which are from plugins, um, which is like what I wrote, which is just like a plugin that's a transform. And then you write it out again. Um, so there is some way to make Babel understand even more syntaxes like JSX. And so, you know, th there's something that they added where if you look at Miguel's project, it has like, you know, in that object I was describing earlier where you can have like a variable declaration, which is clearly part of the JavaScript language. You can also have like a must a mustache uh, mustache template or like a mustache expression. And then you can even have like a block expression. So you can get two different 
opportunities to transform a node based on whether it's a curly curly that's invoked as a single curly curly or with a block passed in. Nice. So this is really cool because, man, there's been so many times where in Ember, I've really wanted to do stuff to the children of the thing I'm working on. And this is like, maybe I'm making a dynamic table of contents component. And um, like the way someone's going to use my table of contents component is going to be to pass in, like, let's say you have a nav as nav, and then you call nav that item, nav that item, nav that item. In React, you, it's really easy to say, like, um, was it props.children? Yeah, yep. And you can map over it. You can do all sorts of stuff. And it's always been hard to do that in Ember. Um, but this notion that our template is data, and sometimes it's, import, it's, it's, it's very handy to be able to do stuff with that data, it's kind of coming out in this compile time stuff too. And so it even makes me think, like, you could even rewrite that at compile time to something simpler, especially if it were like these UI components we're talking about where um, it's just a static thing you need, but you don't know until you've looked at the template what you actually need. Yeah, I'm definitely excited for you to write a whole style guide that's uh, <laughs> generated at compile time. <laughs> One step at a time. <laughs> There's a lot here. Um, so yeah, anyways, kind of going through those commits was really fun because um, he just started making the FA icon more and more sophisticated. And um, it also answers the question, like it doesn't have to be black and white. If you were to make UI components that could be optimized and yeah, you're just using like a UI title and then you just replace it with like a, a H2. But now you've added something like style is a computer property. You can still have that. That's pretty cool. Really cool. Um, and then, so that's what he did. He extracted that out into something called Ember AST helpers. And I learned how to use that as well. And it just gives you something called a build time component. And um, I think you register it uh, as a preprocessor. And um, actually, that's, the th that's what you do. You grab his build time component. And it's really simple. I mean, no, it's not really simple. But conceptually, it is. Right. So in order to turn something like FA icon curly curly into an I tag, HTML tag with the right classes, you need to write that transform, right? So you need to intercept the correct one, and then you need to return a new node, which is just a JavaScript object with like a bunch of keys and values. Mm -hmm. But like it's hard. And so his thing makes it basically easy. You, you take his node class, you new it, and then you pass in like tag name I, just like you would to an Ember component. But now you have this object in node that you can call to node on, and it gives you that node representation. It's confusing because <laughs> the environment is node. And also the parts of your program are called nodes in Babel. But basically, when you're writing on the server at the compile time step, you take that component and then you call like two node or two element on it. And then you can pass that to Babel. And now it's basically going to rewrite your program using that thing. Can I, can I try to repeat this back yeah. to you? So you're reading, in, you're reading in an AST and you get to a node. That's a compile time component. Yeah, you get to you get to an FA icon with you a get curly to an F, curly. Yeah, you get yes. to curly curly FA icon, and then at that point you can call to element. That that's not the compile time component. That's the that's the part that you're interested in, which you've done, um, which you've done somewhere. Like you've said, if this is FA icon, give me a function to to run. And now in this function, right, what you want to do is switch that from curly curly FA icon to just an HTML element. And this is where Miguel's thing comes in. Right. So I don't have to like create a new JavaScript object and be like, it's HTML, it's tag name is I. Exactly. All you have to do is new build time component 
which has the same syntax as an Ember component, so it's super easy. It's like tag name I, class name this and this, and then it gives you like this crazy long object that represents that thing. That's like, you know, it has also children and here's my children, here are my call expressions that are, you know, all these things. Nice. So it just is an easy way. It's just a way to make it easier to get the Babel tree to transform in the way that you want it to. Very cool. That's super cool. It's so interesting. And so I'm, I, I'm hoping to, to use that more um, as, as I get into the style guide stuff because I think it's going to be really helpful. Yeah. So, yes, definitely. Yeah, it was fun. So uh, one of the apps that I'm working on, we have, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it has a bunch of forms. It probably has, if I had to guess, like 15 forms. Um, and those forms all have similar logic. Like they're, they're all going to have validations. They're all going to have branded inputs. Um, there's multiple actions you can take when, when it comes time to save the form. So you can, you can save a form that you know you're going to edit later. You can save the form and like send it to your boss for them to edit. You can just say, I'm done with this. I want to, I want to submit it and I want it to start like going through the system. Um, and the way we were, we were testing all this was with acceptance tests because we wanted to know that all these forms work from the user's point of view. So, um, you know, you go to the page, you fill in a bad email address, you click save and, and a validation error pops up or, um, you're not authorized to, to submit the form, but you're authorized to, uh, let's say save the form for someone else to submit. Um, so that's another thing that's hard about this was that users can exist in several different, different yeah, states. several different states. So, and, and then not only that, but then the forms are editing models and those models have their own states. So there's like this big, uh, you know, grid of, of, um, what state your form is in right? big matrix. Right. Um, and so, so we, when we originally started doing this, we had a whole bunch of acceptance tests as a user with, with this access, when I go to a form that's in this state, I should be able to, you know, change these fields and click these buttons and see these validations. Mm -hmm. Um, and this worked well. I, I, I think this is the best way to express what we were trying to build mm -hmm. because that's exactly how a product person, if you were sitting next to them, that's how they would describe it. Uh, but the problem is it was really slow mm. uh, just because, you know, your your form can be in five states. Your user can be in, I think it was like six different states. Um, and we were testing like very specific scenarios, but, you know, every every form. Oh, and then there's like uh you know, 15 forms throughout this application. Right. So this just kept multiplying, multiplying, multiplying. And our test suite got up to like, it was taking like 10 minutes to run. Um, we went to Ember exam and we paralyzed uh, our builds on Circle CI. Uh, so that got our test suite down to like five minutes. We did some improvements. I think that we dropped it down to like, yeah, it was about five minutes, let's mm -hmm. say. Um, but one of the things we realized is, is, yeah, acceptance tests are great for for user behavior, but there's a whole bunch of checks we want to do. Like, given a form in this state with this model and this user, this is what it should look like. Um, like a, a form component. Yeah, form component. Yeah. Um, and so we still just to help you develop it, basically. Yeah, yeah. Or just to know that it's working. No, if someone it's working. if someone reports a bug that says, you know, 
I went to a form that was uh, in the processing state and the user was access level four. Right. And I didn't see this one input field. Like you would have to go, you know, you'd have to set up a lot of stuff just right. to confirm that. So and you want to nice to suite. just open a test that had that form with those users. Exactly. And see all the assertions. And if you're missing something. Exactly. So one of the things we did was we kind of use the acceptance tests for happy path testing. Mm -hmm. So they're not testing every single form state with every single type of user. Um, you know, there's just too many. There's too many to do that. So we, right. we test... You know, we know that like this form is most commonly used by this type of user. So we're going to write a, an acceptance test for that. Very happy path test. Um, then we use integration tests to kind of spin up the form in every possible state, give it a whole bunch of different users and assert that, you know, the right fields showed up, the right buttons showed up. Um, there's no like end to end testing there. So we weren't testing that in the integration test. We're not testing that when you click submit you um a model gets sent to mirage we're not we're not doing any of that that's all acceptance testing land now do you are you rendering the form yeah we i mean we're rendering the form because it's an integration test so in the new with the new test it would need like a rendering context let's say yeah yes it does so one of the things is you know these tests are also repetitive that we took the um it's like module four component test mm -hmm. helper and we modified that. We basically extended that to do a whole bunch of common setup. Oh, cool. So that sets you up with a user that sets up your, um, it sets up. Uh, module for form or something? Yeah, it's actually, it's called module for form. Oh, cool. Um, sets you up with a user. It sets you up with an Ember data store that has all of the models that basically this form expects to operate on. Oh, cool. So it knows, it, it knows all that stuff. So when you're looking at these integration tests, um, there's not a lot to them. It's nice. it's render this form, make sure these fields are here, make sure these buttons are here. So how do you um, like change the user? So like, let's say, walk me through how to use it yeah. for a new form. So this is, it's like built up off of a component integration test. Mm -hmm. So we built, we build an API. We have a function called like this dot set user permission. And, uh, and you'll do that inside your test. So your test is basically this dot set user permission. And you'd say like access level four. And then you would say render the form and then you'd run your assertions. Um, and the nice thing is like, because we're asserting stuff that we know, you know, we're not asserting random stuff. We're asserting buttons are there and, and form inputs are there and messages are there. So even our assertions can be built into the, 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 the API test. that you've written. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, you know, ideally I want to get it to a point. I don't think I'm going to, because this is just way too, way too abstract. But ideally, you can look at the name of the test mm. and you can know exactly what's supposed to be happening. It's interesting. It's like as an access level four user with a with a, filling out this filling out this form with a model that has this property. I should see these buttons. I mean, this goes back to something we talked about with some of the projects we've worked on, where sometimes you just wanted to find a matrix yeah. of the permissions and have just test go through the matrix and validate everything. Yeah. Scary thing about that is that if you do that, do you write a test for your test generating matrix? <laughs> it's true. There's a lot of opportunities for false positives in there. <laughs> yeah. So with with this, we didn't, you know, it's still 
looks and feels like a component integration test. There's just a lot of helpers that do setup beforehand and, and they give you some APIs. So it's not so abstract. Yeah. We, I another mean, we could, developer could go in and understand basically what's happening. Absolutely. We yeah. could push this thing so, so much further, but I think it's a good, um, a good like balancing act because, you know, component integration tests, you know, the, the reason we're using them here, it's kind of for integration, but it's also for speed. I mean, mm -hmm. I would love, like, ideally, I would keep the acceptance tests. So if the acceptance tests were fast enough. If they were fast. I mean, the only thing that prompted this was the test suite taking 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So, but I, I think, you know, integration tests, it's, I think it's okay. You can strike a little balance here where they're fast tests. You can build up APIs around them. Right. I think I would be really put off by this if if every single integration test had like all this set up. Right. Because then, you know, you have 15 forms. They have 15 integration tests that right. are just tons of copy and paste of code between right. them. Um, it's interesting. Did this make you, I'm curious if you've thought like, could this be, would this affect how you write tests and kind of apps in the future where it almost sounds like you have a domain specific module. Did you think, you know, is there something there where if you're writing tests in the future and there's some part of the app that's really domain heavy, you know, we talk a lot about how in other parts of the app, you obviously you have a framework and you have the building blocks, but, but part of our job as application developers is to turn business requirements into domain objects. So that's very clear. And so that the code is speaking in the domain of the app. And so is there something there with testing as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And I think this is this is the thing that convinced me of that. Interesting. Because you can open up a test that's like a form test. Right. It means something very specific. And it yeah, it has all these assertions and right. everything built for you. So yeah. I guess there's almost an overlap with page objects too, where if you opened up an app that heavily used page objects, it would be very domain specific. Yeah. Yes. Um, yep. But, you know, there's obviously trade-offs there as well. You know, page objects are... That's something that developers have to learn when they step into a project. You know, are they working correctly? Um, so I think there's 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 always trade-offs between the low-level stuff that's understandable and the higher-level domain-specific abstracted stuff, which is maybe a lot more powerful and more expressive, but comes with the cognitive load. I think I think yeah, and I think a key thing here is like this isn't meant to replace right acceptance testing. This right. isn't like acceptance testing is slow so let's all move everything to integration tests it's it's um you still you still are going to have acceptance tests we still have unit tests it's just this is that happy middle i can't help but think about our conversation last week where you know this sounds a lot like what we used to say with ember templates and html and now it feels like again i'm not saying we don't want to write html anymore but it does feel like we're at a place where we're saying, sure, it sure would be nice to have a first-class way for developers building applications to define domain-specific components, build them up in a way that everyone can discover them and use them successfully. Whereas right now, all that stuff is all that stuff is basically ad hoc, right? Yes. Yep. So um, I think that's the direction that frameworks in general are pushing. I mean, even tools like Sketch, right? Sketch doesn't come with anything and you define your own components. So from the beginning, designers are thinking in terms of the building blocks of, of things that make sense for their application. And ideally, you want them to get to a point where they only have symbols. Yes, And that's exactly. all they're doing is just dragging dragging things around the, their sketch canvas. And it's a tweet and it's a, yep. you know, a, a Twitter header. And You know what's interesting about this is I don't think when the project started, I don't think we could have known this. 
I don't think we could have known, even though I knew there were 15 forms and there were all these different types of users and mm -hmm. they would all be interacting with the forms. I don't think I could have told you, okay, we need a form testing module right. and it's going to have this API. This is something that I think we had to go through that journey right. of, of writing a lot of acceptance Duplicating tests. a lot and seeing what's similar. Yeah. Trying it in integration tests, looking at all the duplication and, and coming to this. So. Interesting. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So in that sense, it's similar where you, you start out, sometimes you do kind of start out with low level HTML, CSS, and then you extract the domain specific abstractions from them. Yeah. Um, and like two interfaces might look similar, but they look pretty different. So it, there's an argument to be made for each of them having their own domain specific components, but with testing, you know, testing really is validating the user flows through an app and the way users use an app is mostly pretty similar. Like you have clicks, you have visits, you fill in forms, mm -hmm. which is why those kind of single global helpers at the acceptance level or even the rendering helpers in the integration test make sense to use. But again, like maybe there's one pathway through your app. There's a user action in your app that's so heavy, like filling out forms in this application or maybe like dragging cards in Trello where you would want a module that a domain specific test module, a way to test that easily in your domain because it's, it's would be too cumbersome with just the low level tools. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I would, I would, again, I would, I would advise like, don't look for this in your right. app, wait till you feel the pain. Right. And this is just one approach you can take. Like you can, you can override what module for component is doing. And, right. And have it do some more stuff. Right. So what is it like in before each and after each? Exactly. So nice. before each, we set up a few services. Uh, we set up data in the store. So you're and, like reaching into the container and stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We are not, you know, we wrap everything in ember.run. Right. So if you write an integration test and you do a set, you have to wrap that in ember.run. I see. Run. And that's part of the, that's some, where the lots of code comes from. Yeah. And we don't want developers who are writing a form test to even have to think of that. Right. So it's it's a lot easier to just say... Listen, for this, we don't care if you do an out-of-band ember.set. We know we know, we want you to because we want you to write a test that's, um, that's, that's really te concise. Testing the, yeah, and, and testing the actual form, yes. which involves this, all that stuff. Right. We've already got the, the out-of-band testing stuff done in other integration tests, so that's not the point of this. Cool. Yep. Nice. That's really neat. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm happy with it. It's fast. So and... is it faster? So what's the speed? Yeah. Of? So, well, I mean, part of the problem here is, is the app. The app has a whole lot of Chrome. So it has like a big header, a big footer, a whole bunch of components there. So a lot the, of network requests. Yeah, a lot of network requests. So the integration tests were, were or sorry, the acceptance tests were just a little slower because of all that. Because um, the app is kind of slow. In yeah, the app is kind of slow. It's yeah. big. It's a big, yeah. like it's, there's a, to render one of these forms, the page it's rendered on is a really big page. Right. Um, so, so I think we went from, the, about let's say a thousand milliseconds to render a page and and fill in the form and you know inspect the buttons and the validations down to about 300 milliseconds wow um yeah so it's it's That's awesome yeah it's pretty good improvement yeah. um cool yeah so if you have slow tests i think my my recommendations here would be first do ember exam and paralyze your uh your ci and then go on and and find some way to to speed up your tests Right. Code as a last resort. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is also too, this is, I mean, this is debt, right? Yeah. It, when, as the Ember uh, testing ecosystem changes, I'm going to have to update this stuff. Right. So yeah, it's, there's some maintenance there. Yeah. 
but it's all, like everything is trade off. Right. <laughs> so I I finished uh, recording probably the last video of the Mirage series at least for now. Uh, yesterday. Nice. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. You did uh, like what? Like it's five videos this month. Yep. Nice. Yep. So that's and they're long ones too. This one's like what was it? Twenty eight minutes or something like that. Yeah, I think it was about thirty. Yeah. That's pretty. That's that's definitely longer than the ones we used to make, but. You know, it's fun and, and I want it to be more as if, you know, our videos have kind of changed from kind of shorter, um, almost like essay style to a pairing feel where it's like you're sitting next to us. And I think we both really like that format just because you get to see mistakes that are made and you get to see all the little things that someone does, you know, and that was my, that was my favorite part of watching other people code mm. as well. Right, right. Seeing everything they do, because maybe you pick up on something like the way their their key bindings are set up. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think when we started making videos, we, we didn't, we had like this goal. We don't want to waste people's time. Right. So we're going to pack as much information. And if we have a video that's like only 25 minutes, but it covers everything, like another video covers in three hours, because right. that three hour video is rambling. Right. We're doing a good job. And we've gotten feedback that people like really like that. People say like, thanks for not wasting my time. Right. Which is awesome. Yep. Um, I think you, this, this you lose a natural aspect when you very, very tightly cut out everything right. that's not directly in the script. Right. So I don't think we're going all the way right. to let's just hit Let record. Yeah, exactly. Because that is a waste of time. Yeah. So we um, still edit a ton and none of it is, is shouldn't be there. Right? right. Right. If it shouldn't be there, we would cut it. Exactly. Um, it's like an efficient pairing session. Yes. <laughs> it's, but, a, it's a pairing session where, where your pairing partner makes no mistakes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, um, has no NPM issues. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that's, um, yeah, so that was fun. And this last one was related to some of the stuff we talked about last week. We wrote a blog post about a helper we use to test server errors. Um, and so that's what the video goes into more detail there. Um, definitely stuff that, you know, we learned kind of through trial and error over the last six months that I would have liked to know a year or two ago. I mean, this stuff came up all the time and it was always kind of a head scratcher. Yep. So, um, it was fun because, you know, as they say, the best way to learn is to teach. So me having to make the video and write the post really forced me to learn this stuff inside and out. So it's kind of fun to feel like I've mastered that now. So, you know, everything about all the, the substates, the error substates in an Ember app. I know more than I did. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, it is really cool though. Yeah. So, uh, so next week, uh, you know, we'll start our next video series or maybe record a video you know, some of the ones we do are kind of one-offs, but um, we're starting to think about what our next series should be. Do you have any ideas? Well, I did I did email out before we started Mirage. We emailed out the list and a lot of folks asked for Mirage, kind of like an advanced Mirage. So that's what led to the Tips and Tricks series. Um, some folks asked about Off, which I thought would be interesting, either as a standalone video or, or a series, but maybe we could cover what we need to cover would you, are you thinking like we talk about how we do auth or, or more like here's all these auth situations and here's how you make them work in a number app? That's a good question. Um, you know, there definitely are some standard solutions in the Ember ecosystem. And when, you know, the way we do auth relies a lot on the standard browser behavior and also how Rails takes care of it because we're used to using Rails. And that's just how we did it before those standard solutions were even around. And they just rely on kind of standard browser session stuff. So 
you know, I, I really liked learning all about, I learned a lot about that from you. And um, I think it would be valuable to have some content out there that explains what it is you need to do to have an authenticated Ember app. And like, what are the steps involved and like where the tokens live, where the session lives, who's responsible for what, what's safe to expose, what's not safe to expose. Because I feel like once you understand that, it helps a lot, yeah. regardless if you're using something like Simple Auth that, that abstracts some of that away, or you're just using like a, a session directly from the browser. Yeah. Yeah. I think we could do that. I, I think, think it could be really cool. Yeah. Um, someone asked about PWA, which... Admittedly, I don't know a ton about, but I do know there's a lot of resources now in the Ember community specifically. You know, I know Dockyard does this a bunch and there's some others. So that would be a fun one to, to teach. Um, some folks asked about live updating data. Ah, uh, nice. Which would be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, that would be fun, right? Super you've, fun. You've worked on a big WebSocket app before. Yeah, so. real-time app. So... Um, there's a lot of cool little stuff in there too. You know, I like when we get to make content where we make kind of the bigger points about things. You know, in the D3 series, I got to talk about a lot about declarative rendering, um, which is not necessarily something you would think about if you were just saying, okay, how do I make a D3 chart? But it right. comes up in so many ways because because D3 is so many imperative APIs, right? Um, and I feel like in the live updating data uh, series, we'd be able to talk about you know, states of your app and in, in, in which it can exist and how that matters so much. Because, you know, as we've been we've been talking about recently, like when you have an Ember app with stale data, when you're waiting for an Ajax request, all these things introduce new states in your application. And we know that makes it harder to work with. So if you have a reliable real time data connection, it in some ways makes it really easy because your app is kind of always up to date and you don't have to worry about a lot of things. So your app is only out of sync for, you know, a few milliseconds. And basically it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. It, it basically is out of sync fast enough that you as a developer don't have to think about that state of your application. Whereas with a traditional app, maybe it takes a long time. So you have to show a pending or it um, gets out of sync. So you have to refresh the data, right? There's a lot of things. Again, that app that I worked on, you're just, you just assume you have the freshest data I mean, if you don't at a global level, you can say we've lost a connection, but you're basically on or off. Yeah. As opposed to these kinds of numerous different states that you can exist in. So anyways, I think there's some really cool points you could make if you were talking about this. Nice. Um, nice. And then also it would maybe give us an opportunity to mess around with Action Cable, which we, we've been wanting to do. Yeah. Yep. And, you know. God, we've been on Rails 5 for, for so long and we haven't. Haven't even used we it. We haven't got to have, have fun with WebSockets. I know. That would be an interesting question for folks would be how many people using rails 5 are, are on action cable using using rails 5 and web sockets yeah i mean i would also want to know how many people are using something like socket io yeah Ember. yep yep i think my gut tells me most folks are like us and you know there's times where real time data would be useful but the hassle to get it up is not really worth it so usually you just you just code around it as if you didn't have it yeah my, my sort of path is like you know, XHR requesting data is a first step, and then like Ember concurrency polling right. is a second step, and then WebSockets right. when 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 they're needed. But if you could, if it was as easy to use WebSockets, you know, and yes. there was an integration layer, that would probably you'd probably just do it as a no brainer, right? Yes. It would probably make your life easier. This is Firebase, right? Yes. Yes. Firebase just WebSockets for free. Exactly. 
So that'd be interesting. And then tachyons and functional CSS. I think a lot of people, whether whether they're interested in functional CSS, tachyons in particular, or even just styles, like they're just like styles is still the wild, wild west. Oh, there's so many ways there's so to many write ways. CSS in a number app. I mean, even it was funny because you were working on, on add-on docs, using add-on docs for storefronts documentation. And you were like, how the hell do I style these docs? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, man, I've thought a lot about this. And like, I wrote a lot of cool components to make it easy to write docs. But at the end of the day, like it's still an Ember app that you want to style your own way. And it's like, how do I do this? And it's like, yeah. you're back to making decisions again. It just feels crazy. By the way, if I, if I didn't hate writing documentation enough, now I have to write documentation and CSS at the same time. <laughs> <That's so. true. laughs> Something to think about yeah. for uh, project adoption. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll have um, we'll be thinking about that soon, and uh, it'll be exciting to start digging into some new material. Awesome. Super excited. Yeah. Last thing I want to mention is um, if things work out, we'll probably have a special guest on the podcast next week. Very cool. I wonder who it will be. Yeah, me too. <laughs> So um, definitely stay tuned for that, and um, that should be a fun one. Hope it works out. And and lastly, we had thought about you know we like hearing from our users about what it's like to be an Ember developer wherever they're working today, and what are the pain points they have, what struggles they have, what feels great, what doesn't. Um, so we, you know we know everyone's busy, and we're always looking for the easiest kind of low friction ways to get feedback from folks. So I think we're going to try this um, idea I've seen other people do on Twitter, which is just to kind of have a weekly thing where it's like a mailbag and we have like a hashtag Ask Ember Map. And for 30 minutes, we're just kind of available on Twitter answering questions and people are asking us. And then, you know, we can take those and answer in more depth if there's some, some harder questions on the podcast or we can write an article about it or whatever. Nice. So I think we're going to try that. We'll have to think about when, but that'll be something to look out for too. Well, I think that's, uh, that's it for today. So um, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. See ya. This podcast is sponsored by embermap.com, where you can find high-quality videos and blog posts made specifically for professional Ember developers. Sign up today to access all of our premium content updated weekly.